Welcome to a special edition of Beyond Your Newsfeed, Understanding Contemporary Politics, a podcast of the Providence College Political Science Department. I am William Hudson, Professor Emeritus of Political Science and host of this podcast. Beyond Your Newsfeed has been on summer vacation. We were intending to res resume our regular episodes uh, this fall when classes resume at Providence College. But last week's release of the latest report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, suggested that perhaps it would be a good time to have a podcast on the very dramatic findings of this uh, timely report. So I've scheduled this special edition uh, with my good colleague, Casey Stevens, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Providence College, and our expert on international environmental politics. Uh, Casey has been researching and writing about the international negotiations on global warming for the last several years and possesses just the expertise needed to help us understand last week's IPCC report and its implications for the planet. Casey Stevens, welcome once again to Beyond Your Newsfeed. It's a pleasure to be here. Okay, so let's jump right in. Why don't you give us a little bit of background, Casey? What is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change? Uh, what is it role? How long has it been around? And uh, what's this? Why do its reports matter? So the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC as it's commonly referred to, um, has been around since the 80s. It was founded in 1988 um, as a joint operation between the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Environment Program to develop um, uh, uh, reports and findings and synthesize the scientific findings about climate change in order to inform uh, ongoing negotiations on climate change at the international level. And so they, the, the negotiations were just ramping up in the late 1980s. Um, and there were some other international sort of uh, organizations looking at climate change and, and, and doing reporting. Um, but the uh, 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 state parties, and it was, it was countries that founded the IPCC, um, decided that they wanted a organization that would uh, be run by them. And so they really took charge of it. So the I in intergovernmental does literally mean that, that countries are um, the ones that uh, are running the show um, to a large extent. Um, while the states do have a large leadership role in the organization, what really happens is they empower scientists to produce a whole host of different reports and reporting mechanisms to help um, international efforts on climate change. Um, and the main sort of report they produce are what's called assessment reports. And um, this is the sixth assessment report. This is the first part of the sixth assessment report. Um, it's actually going to have, have three parts. Um, but the, the sixth assessment report, uh, following ones that were completed in 1990, and then every couple of years uh, since then, the last one was in 2014, uh, which was the year before the Paris uh, Climate Conference agreed on the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and so it's this means of taking the broad and expanding scientific literature about climate change and boiling it down into a, um, a report that can be delivered to policymakers to help them actually make decisions about climate change at the international level um, uh, 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 through negotiations and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, it, it has a large impact there. The last report is what really spurred a lot of action that led to the completion of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, without the IPCC report before that, you really probably wouldn't have gotten uh, uh, that agreement, um, at least not the way it looked at that point, part in, point in time. Um, and a lot of the sort of um, thresholds that they identify become really, really important for future negotiations. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk today about the difference between 1.5 degrees warming and two degrees warming, uh, because that's central in the newest report is really emphasizing that uh, there's a big difference in whether we, we limit to a warming to what we can um, 
uh, boldly accomplish in the next decade or whether we sort of let it continue a little bit and then sort of slowly um, get off of it. Uh, the worlds that, that result from those two occasions are very different. And the IPCC is the lead international organization that's really tasked with assessing the scientific literature and uh, delivering it in a uh, cognizant and, and consistent manner uh, for uh, negotiators. So it's been seven years since its last report. So that's a considerable period of time. A lot's happened in that period uh, of time. Uh, and certainly I would think that for most of us, uh, given uh, our own lived experience, our awareness of how the climate is being affected by global warming is much, much higher. Uh, so, so that makes this report uh, really significant, right? It's, it's coming after a period of time when, when there's kind of a different world now in 2021 than back in 2014. Yeah, and, and, and the IPCC is very aware of that. And so their, their packaging of this report, the way they, they sort of uh, frame their analysis, um, really is focusing not on stuff that we've known. And, and, and the fifth assessment report was quite clear on much of the same scientific findings that this one includes. Climate change is happening. It is virtually certain caused by uh, 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 human activity and human activity could uh, 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 ameliorate uh, climate change. So AC, this is the first part of what's gonna be a three-part report. Yes. Could you, before we jump into this first part that came out last week, yeah. could you kind of go over quickly what these three parts are and how they're connected? Yeah, these three parts are, are well-established. So it's been the, the structure they've used a number of times. Uh, and it's it's an important sort of way that it proceeds. So the first part is what's called the, the um, physical science basis. And so this is, this is uh, uh, climate uh, physics, this is basic chemistry, this is all these various issues that they look at all the findings on and just try to give, okay, what's happening to the world and why is it happening? What are the, 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 the aspects we know? Um, and so that's this first sort of uh, uh, part of the report. And it is um, not a lot of social science is included in, in the first uh, part of the report. It's largely just um, um, the physical science on really what is occurring and, and, and how they know that. Um, and they have very precise um, terminology that they'll use throughout the report about how confident they are in what they're saying. And so, for example, um, when it comes to um, increased heavy rain events, the report says, this, this most recent report says that they have high confidence that human-caused climate change is contributing to a significant increase in heavy rain events around the world. Uh, when it comes to the drought, they only have medium confidence. They don't have high confidence like they do with heavy rain events. Uh, this is all very uh, uh, transparent in their methodology of what statistical evidence they would need precisely to come to these different levels. So that's the physical science uh, sort of um, uh, a report, which is the, the most recent one that got released. Uh, the next one, which is coming out in February of 2022, is going to be about the impacts of climate change and the um, uh, adaptation responses that are, are likely to be necessary uh, and how much those cost. And this is where a lot of social science comes in, a lot of economics, a lot of anthropologists, a lot of sociologists and political science comes into really sort of figuring out, okay, we know climate warming has happened. We know heavy rain events are increasing. We know sea levels are rising. We know drought events are largely uh, 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 increasing because of this. Um, what does that mean? Like, what is the cost of that? How, how much is that actually going to affect our society? So that's going to be the second report that comes out in uh, February. Uh, the third one is the, the really important one in a lot of ways, and that's the mitigation report, which really is going to lay out sort of the ways in which we can influence this process and the ways we can engineer policy and, and governance to really get out of the, the uh, climate crisis. Uh, uh, crisis that we're caught in. Okay, good. So we've got some more discussions to have over the next few months about uh, about this report, uh, though I'm going to get you a little later to speculate on what we might see in report two and report three. Uh, but let's get back to the first part, the physical science report. So 
Uh, why don't you take us through the most significant findings of this report? What do you think uh, really stands out in what they found this time in 2021? Well, so I, I, I want to start with the good news because there actually is some good news in the report, although it's, it's, it's quite dire, the sort of findings. Uh, the good news is that they were quite clear that the scientific findings are that we are still in control of this process that we have not reached a point or passed a threshold where uh, uh, other feedback loops are gonna start and humans are no longer gonna be in charge of the, the, the climate process. Uh, if we could reach climate uh, uh, net zero emissions today, the report said, uh, 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 um, the report uh, pr projected, uh, not predicted, it's projected, um, that um, we would see air quality improve almost instantaneously and we would see the, the temperature stabilize in about the next 20 years. Um, that's, that's a really important takeaway is that we're still completely in charge of it. There's gonna be an IPCC report at some point in the future if we don't take significant action, that's gonna come to a different conclusion. And its conclusion is gonna be, uh, we've we've uh, melted too much uh, uh, ice at the poles, and we've disrupted the the the, the uh, uh, global atmospheric cycles, and so it's no longer in our control. Uh, but right now, this this report is quite clear that humans are still in control of it. And I think that's an important finding. Uh, the second uh, uh, big finding that is uh, stressed significantly uh, is that climate change is widespread and is accelerating. Um, and it, 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 it takes a good approach at actually demonstrating that there's nowhere on earth where people don't know somebody who's been negatively impacted by climate change uh, in the world today. Um, they estimated that the uh, global mean temperature is almost one degree Celsius higher uh, in the first decades of this century compared to 1850 and 1900. Uh, the atmospheric CO2 in 2019 uh, was the highest at any time in at least 2 million years. And they have high confidence in that finding. Uh, the rate of warming is the highest in 2000 years. And so they, they have, they have no, nothing on the, the record that has been a higher rate of warming in uh, 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 recent years. And the sea level rise is the largest we've seen in 3000 years. And so we're seeing the effects right now. We've seen global mean temperatures increase by a degree, and we've seen the, the, the secondary effects uh, that are so destructive to, to human lives uh, happening quickly there. And, and you know, those, those findings, I think, probably resonate much more with people now than seven years ago, because uh, uh, at least I know in my own life, I, I've certainly detected changes in the environment that are, are quite clear. Uh, I've lived in Rhode Island for 50 years now, and this summer is, has been clearly a very, very warm summer compared to what uh, one would expect. Uh, we, we're now on, I think, this last week we had our third major heat wave, which that's uh, three days of 90 degree high humidity weather. And uh, I know that in the past, I would always tell my relatives from other parts of the country, Oh, New England weather is great in the summertime. You'll have maybe a week of hot, humid weather, but then cold fronts from Canada come down, and it's really quite pleasant most of the summer. And that's simply not true anymore. Uh, and I think, uh, I think probably a lot of people like me have, have have observed that in our own real experience. So, so having the science to back up our anecdotal perceptions. Uh, you know, is, is, is valuable. Yeah, that's one of the big new findings in this report. And there's not a lot that's actually new about the physical science from the, 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 the last report. One thing that, that they are quite clear on that, that science has really improved is what, what they call sort of attribution. So where they can say with a high degree of confidence that specific events like heat waves and um, um, high precipitation events and droughts uh, would be extremely unlikely, if not impossible, in a world without human-induced climate change. And the science on that has really developed over the past decade, and so it really fits nicely into the new report. But the main thing that I, I think resonates with, with uh, a lot of people from that is that uh, these climate impacts are, are becoming regularized and um, 
widespread around the world. And so, I, I mean, you know, I come from the American Southwest where, where drought is, is nothing, nothing novel. It, it, it's, it's part of uh, the, the lore of the, the, the area. Um, but now increasingly the drought is reaching larger proportions. And so it's moving out of uh, uh, just regular drought prone regions uh, to even reaching now the Colorado River and, and, and that basin. Uh, California's, of course, uh, had, had a significant drought. Uh, and even into New England, where we're likely to see water restrictions coming uh, more regularly uh, every summer, uh, not just an occasional summer here or there where you don't get rain, uh, but it's going to be more of a persistent feature in still, in, until temperatures stabilize. Yeah, I just read in the press today that for the first time, uh, the Colorado River is not going to be able to provide uh, sufficient water, and they're they're mandating rate rationing. Yeah, which is, I mean, the 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 Lake Mead and and Hoover Dam. Um, if you've been there, it's just a, a, a huge amount of water. It's a massive amount of water, and the 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 sea the the drop in the the water level there is truly astounding over the past decade. Um, and there's there's not a lot of signs that it's going to reverse anytime soon. Uh, and so that's going to significantly impair a lot of uh, agricultural production, both there as well as in Arizona. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, seen, it's a significant impact. I've seen those pictures of Lake Mead with the the, the boat docking piers, uh, you know, many yards from the edge of the of the lake now, uh, and you can see the the line where the 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 lake has dropped down below. Uh, what used to be its level. So uh, talk a little more about this 1.5 degree warming versus two degree warming. The report talks a lot about that. And what, what, what do they say and what's the significance of their finding there? Well, so th this is really an important thing. Um, 1.5 degrees was a, a really interesting thing for, for the first I don't know, uh, a decade of climate negotiations, really since the, the Kyoto Protocol in the 1990s, the target that always would be talked about was two degrees Celsius. They always said, we're trying to keep one warming under two degrees Celsius. Uh, and this is actually Angela Merkel when she was the environmental minister of Germany. Uh, she was actually key at, at creating this goal of two degrees uh, uh, Celsius. Uh, but it, it was never scientifically vetted. There's no reason why we're trying to keep it at two degrees. It was just a nice sort of uh, uh, um, uh, bureaucratic goal, I guess, that the, the Germans really liked and everybody else sort of adopted it because they were pushing it. Um, and so in the Copenhagen summit that uh, failed miserably, the, the Copenhagen climate negotiations in 2009 that, that really failed badly, um, the small island developing states, the, the, the low-lying uh, islands around the world uh, who are in panic mode because uh, six, degree, six feet of, of sea level rise, like the, the report predicts is, is likely to happen on our, our current trajectory uh, within the century, is, is a death sentence for them. Um, they, in order to sort of spur action, came up with this 1.5 degrees Celsius. So we're not going to go for two degrees, we're going to go to 1.5. With, with them saying that, the IPCC became much more interested in understanding what the possible differences would be about various warming scenarios that we could achieve. So, so if we were to achieve two degrees warming this century, what would that look like? What would it look like if we achieved 1.5? And so the IPCC came out with a, a small report, not an assessment report, but a small report um, three years ago that looked at this, this difference. And what it found was there is a dramatically large difference between if we can achieve 1.5 degrees of warming, and we've already achieved, we, we've already got one degree of warming, so we we, we don't have a lot left to sort of um, have have happen. Uh, but if we could if we could reach 1.5 degrees level of warming, the sea level rise would be a difference of like one to two feet to six to nine feet, a significant difference for everybody that lives in. Um, uh, uh, near the coast or, or uh, uh, along sea levels. Um, the rate of droughts and, and floods and all these things go up dramatically at two degrees. And the reason is largely because these 
uh, what the scientists call positive feedbacks, which is where the, the, the it's not a good thing. So, so positive feedback doesn't mean it's a good thing. It's where the climate process starts to sort of spiral out of control. It causes its own sort of feedback loops. And so uh, uh, humans cause warming, which then melts the, the, the uh, sea tundra, which then releases methane caught in the, the, the ground there, which causes even more warming. These, these are the positive feedback loops that are looking at. Uh, at 1.5 degrees, we're going to have minor uh, positive feedback loops. At two degrees, we're going to have quite significant uh, positive feedback loops. And so the difference in the world is really significant. So this report is really good because what it does is in Paris, the countries agreed that they were going to go for 1.5 degrees. It was a big uh, sort of statement of what their goal was for action uh, and, and, and very different than um, uh, uh, prior statements in terms of ambition. Uh, this report, and we're going to mainly see this in the second and the third report as well, um, are, are going to take that seriously. They're going to say, if you want to reach 1.5 degrees, here's what you have to do. Here's how we can accomplish that. And so they're taking what's the, the agreed upon goal of 1.5 degrees, and they're really just putting out the physical science of what that would mean and how we would get there. Yeah, the, the report talks about tipping points too, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, and that's related to this notion of feedback, irreversible feedback loops. Yeah. Uh, so what does it tell us about those tipping points? Well, there's a whole host of those that the report talks about, about these, these, these points where uh, the effects of climate change become permanent. And, and once again, the, the, there's the good news in the report, which is that we haven't crossed many of these tipping points. Now, some species have been lost to, to climate change. Uh, some significant disruption to the, the, the ocean climate has happened. Uh, but in general, the, the, the main and the most important tipping points are regarding Arctic ice cover and, and, and some key aspects like that uh, have not been passed at this particular point. Um, and so... So we, we still have a chance to have ice in the Arctic. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and um, once again, it, it's, it's about sort of a tipping point is a system that's, that's sort of rapidly accelerating which is what we're doing right now. We're rapidly accelerating towards the 1.5, two degree uh, sort of uh, uh, limits. Um, but if we get control of it, if we adjust the climate, uh, the, the carbon emissions down even a, a, a small amount, that can move us farther away from the tipping points than, than, than we are even today by allowing the sort of uh, emissions to gradually sort of equalize and then some natural processes are going to work it out so that we don't get close to the tipping point. Uh, but as long as we're on the gas, the tipping points are going to come up uh, fairly quickly uh, and then, then going to become permanent. Yeah. And quickly, what are, what are, besides the Arctic, what are the other, other things that we'd want to look for? Well, so, points? yeah. So ecosystem collapse is a large one. Ecosystem collapse caused by climate change. There's of course a lot of pressures on ecosystems, both uh, human development and, and uh, cattle uh, uh, production, as well as just uh, uh, timber cutting down, uh, but also climate related uh, uh, impacts could collapse some ecosystems, uh, which is problematic because of course, healthy ecosystems are crucial to uh, uh, taking CO2 and turning it into oxygen. Um, and, and, and thus controlling the, the greenhouse effect to some extent. Uh, so if we saw- well, an ecosystem yeah. coll collapse would be something like the coral reefs disappearing. Yeah, uh, or, or bleaching. So if the, if the coral reefs get, get bleached or, or, or go uh, or, or, or just disappear, then what you would have is you'd have that system just stop functioning, which then kills off all the material except for algae probably. Um, and then, then uh, uh, it stops functioning effectively in terms of its ecosystem service to the, the global climate. Uh, but then the, the second big one that we want to look for is the seas. And the seas are highly complex uh, systems. Uh, the ocean chapter of the, the most recent report was really startling, actually. It's a really good report. Um, but, but the oceans are another one of these tipping points that we could quickly uh, cross some uh, uh, points of acidification that are not reversible. Uh, and of course, coral destruction, as well as uh, various other problems that we could introduce into the, the ocean system um, that could even disrupt then the, the, the entire uh, jet streams of, of the 
northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere, uh, significantly impacting weather across uh, across the world. Yeah, there's a possibility the Gulf Stream would be disrupted, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they talk a little bit about that. Once again, they have sort of medium confidence in that, so they haven't passed their very rigorous threshold to have high confidence in it. Uh, but it is one of these these tipping points that they're uh, keeping a look on that is possible at, at two degrees plus of warming. Yeah, and, and that would change the climate in the eastern seaboard of the United States and in Europe. Yeah, quite significantly, yeah. Yeah, so, wow. Well, uh, the report also goes into uh, some of the effects on particular regions of the world. It doesn't just focus on the globe as a whole. You want to say something about that? Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is one of the main things with how they're uh, focusing on uh, climate change is it's no longer being presented at just a global level, but they're really trying to speak about regions in um, in a focused manner. And so, um, like everything, uh, 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 climate change's impacts are going to vary. They're, they're going to be constant around the world, but the, the degree and the uh, intensity of them are going to vary uh, in, in uh, different regions. Um, there was nothing uh, that was, was particularly uh, notable about this, except for the, the, the fact that they demonstrated quite consistently that climate change impacts are happening in every single region that there is. And so there's no region where you can sort of look at it and go, okay, they're, they're having moderate climate impacts or no climate impacts at all. Uh, instead, while we might be seeing rain events in, in some areas, drought and fires in others, uh, it is quite consistent around the, the, the sort of regions that they're having impacts. Um, however, uh, once again, uh, if you are a, a coastal region, you're going to have uh, uh, particular concerns about sea level rise that are, are, are quite significant and pressing. Uh, if you're in the, the, the inland regions, you're going to be more concerned with drought as well as, as heavy precipitation events uh, and flooding. Uh, and so uh, 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 looking at those is going to be part of it. Uh, we're going to see a lot more of that when it comes to the second uh, report in February. The second report is really going to be regional focused. Um, and and I, I think they've already released some of the, the background chapters or they're, they're out there at least. Um, they're, they're going to take a big impact on, on what regions are going to have to sort of focus on. Yeah, I'd like to get talk a little bit about the next two reports and, and what we can expect from them. But uh, anything more about this first report that that we really ought to talk about. One of the things that, that just from my perspective of, of trying to study how science and scientific evidence can influence policymakers is the the way they're they're retaining scientific rigor while also having a clear eye towards influencing policy. And so the the first report is written in the most dry manner possible and uh, they, they even have the, the, the phrase like, we calculate with confidence is, is their, their main takeaway. We calculate with confidence that human-caused climate change is occurring. Uh, this one is much more focused on delivering rigorous science, well-developed and, and, and very advanced uh, uh, stuff, in a way that is trying to, to speak to uh, uh, politicians and people in a convincing manner. Um, and that's partially talking about it in terms of uh, how confident they are. And so they don't, they don't say anymore that we calculate with confidence. Instead, they say it is certain that anthropogenic climate change is occurring. Um, that's a, a, a good development. But secondly, is also focusing on the uh, experiences of people and, and exactly how they... Um, how people's lives are really being impacted by these. And, and once again, that's going to be even more emphasized in the next two chapters, but that's a clear framing choice that they're making now that they did not make in earlier reports. And I think it's going to be a positive impact about how it influences uh, policy discussions. Is that perhaps a reflection of all the skepticism that has been demonstrated uh, about science uh, around the world? Uh, well, I, and it comes to environment, but also COVID and vaccines and everything else. I've talked to a couple of climate scientists over the past uh, couple of months, and I, I, I don't want to speak for them as a whole. Uh, but I think that they, as a group, understand that a lot of the, the climate science was 
rooted in a very few institutions, largely the United States and Europe. That's where most of the science was, was produced in, in the UK, Europe, and the United States, uh, largely by white males um, uh, in those countries um, in uh, uh, ways that had a whole host of gatekeepers sort of separating uh, individuals from, from ascertaining the science. Um, that caused some skepticism. So that caused some people to not really believe in the report at various points. Uh, some, some good faith uh, questioning of, of the scientific basis, and of course, some bad faith uh, questioning the scientific basis by people with clear economic interests, not interested in, uh, in, in actually a genuine debate. Uh, and they respond to that. So uh, they, they did a good job uh, recently in, in this report, and particularly of trying to diversify perspectives and make sure that their scientific rigor really uh, included uh, diverse voices, not just from, from a few institutions, but really around the world, um, so that they, they can ensure that, that uh, the, the findings can travel and can travel widely uh, to a lot of different people. Uh, and so, yes, it's a, a response to skepticism of science, uh, but I think it's a, a, a good response to some genuine skepticism. Uh, I, I, I think they uh, have, have given up certain parts of the, the world. Just they're, they're not going to be convinced by the climate change report, no matter what we produce. So we'll just produce a really good report that actually helps uh, uh, people that care about it take action. Okay. And as an expert on, on sort of the politics of this, uh, do you think this might improve the ability of uh, these scientists to impact policy. Yeah, and so um, the IPCC report does actually have state, let's, how, let's see how I phrase this. It does have government editorial sort of oversight, not over all parts of it. And so the, the, the chapters that are produced uh, in each of these reports are produced by the scientists entirely. They, 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 they have the ability to deliver uh, truth with, with their, their scientific rigor and conscience. Um, and, and, and when I say scientists, uh, the first couple of reports were, were, were small groups of scientists. Uh, at this point, I, I think the, I, I can't remember exactly, but there, there was one chapter that had 40 authors so, so it's, it's a large collaborative body of, of, of effort on, on actually getting these things together. Um, but then when we get to the summaries for policymakers and particularly the entire report synthesis, it will actually be presented to governments uh, that, that make up the, the, the body of the IPCC and they can actually edit it and, and change uh, stuff that's happening. And that's happened a number of times from both the United States as well as Saudi Arabia um, are the, the two most notable examples where scientists push back against them, but it's happened from other states as well. Um, and it, it, it can be minor points. Uh, it can also be cutting out entire graphs. And so in the, the, the fifth uh, uh, IPCC report, the, um, Saudis uh, removed a chart that they didn't like. So they, they just took the chart out and, and didn't include the, the, the report. Um, I, 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 uh, the, the, the exact, how much political interference there's gonna be in the, this final draft is yet to be seen. And it's something that's gonna be exploring. Uh, but I think the scientists that, that sort of composed this, this sixth report really took the pains to make sure that there's going to be minimal intervention in the, the product so that it, the, the final product is as close to the scientific basis as possible without um, a, a, a political interference really happening. Um, and part of that's being stodgy. And once again, it's a, it's a dry report in certain respects. Um, but part of that is also making sure that you have a, a diverse scientific body making up the, the reports and that you you deliver it in an effective way that, that that's going to be convincing um, to, to people regardless of their, their uh, own political sort of goals. Okay, could, could you just give us a quick preview of your expectations for the next two parts uh, of the report? Uh, what, what kinds of things that we learn and, and the like? A little more detail. Yeah, so the, the impacts and adaptation, the second report that's going to come out in February is the one that I'm sort of most interested in sort of seeing, um, which is going to talk about both the, the impacts that are already occurring, how are people changing their, their sort of uh, behaviors, what are the impacts, what is the cost of climate change uh, in, in the world right now. Um, it will be the same scientific rigor, and so there, there will be a larger 
sort of uh, uh, confidence intervals uh, uh, around their, their findings. Uh, but still, they're going to deliver the best that the science has, has discovered about what are the impacts of climate change and, and how are people adapting to that in a variety of ways. So, so that report will talk about things like uh, population movements or uh, impacts on cities that that are that that will have to deal with rising water. Yeah, so it'll talk about all those things. Just the the, the way that life is going to change. So if you want to save Venice, which I, I hope we all do, uh, you're going to have to build a seawall. Like they just finished a multi-million dollar seawall uh, to protect Venice actually from from sea level rise. Um, look at all those costs worldwide. How much does all of that sort of climate infrastructure transformation actually add up to? How much of it is is stuff that we're spending on right now? Um, as well as how much of it is sort of the disruptive events. So how much of it is, is land that gets flooded and the people have to move? Um, high precipitation events that ruin a year's crops for an entire country. Um, drought that, that, that uh, uh, causes you not to, to have water or to have to ration uh, and then, then rebuild back when, when you have uh, sufficient water, stuff like that. Uh, how much does all of these issues sort of add up to in terms of the large impact? And once again, it's going to be very uh, focused on actually ascertaining what is the, the lived impact that we're going through right now and what are the adaptations that are going to be likely over the next 80 years if we keep on our current trajectory because of sea level rise and flooding and uh, uh, drought and uh, worst fires and, and events like these. And the third part is going to include some recommendations for mitigating climate change. Uh, what do you guesses about what we'll see there. Yeah, I mean, the, the mitigations is really the projections. Um, and so um, the IPCC has always done projections. It's been uh, part of their, their toolbox from the beginning. Uh, but the scientific basis for that has really got quite advanced so that they'll be able to tell us quite effectively um, how how much interventions we have to do in order to really reach certain levels and what it means if we, if we don't reach those levels uh, in a variety of ways. And so, I mean, the, the first part of the report that, that just got released was, was quite limited. Their big finding, their big conclusion was, uh, and I'm going to quote it directly, uh, from a physical science perspective, limiting human-induced global warming to a specific level requires limiting cumulative CO2 emissions, reaching at least net zero CO2 emissions, along with strong reductions in other greenhouse gas emissions. They're just talking about the physical science of it. If you want to decrease human-induced uh, global warming, then decrease emissions. But the third one is really going to be, okay, how much do we have to cut emissions? What is the difference between reaching net zero in 2030? Uh, where, where we are simply not emitting any new carbon by 2030 versus by 2050, which is, is, is sort of the large debate in the policy realm is whether we want to reach net zero by, by 2050 or even sooner than that. Um, and so they're going to lay it out there, really, what are the different impacts that, that are likely in, front, in all these sort of scenarios? Um, as well as as uh, some discussion about what are the what are the likely costs going to be to to uh, those different mitigation scenarios, and they all come with costs. So, will that report get into kind of specific policy recommendations, like the extent to which uh, uh, we ought to shift towards electric cars, or uh, the extent to which uh, there we ought to, at what point do we need to get rid of uh, coal? Uh, power plants? Will it will get to that level of specificity or is it broader? It, it'll still be a little bit agnostic about a lot of those questions. Uh, so like the, the IPCC came out with a uh, dietary guide last year, actually, a, a dietary report, uh, which uh, discussed uh, what are the climate impacts of food choices. And they, they said, listen, we're not going to tell people to stop eating meat. That's, that's not our job to tell you what you should be putting in your body. What we are going to tell you is there are climate impacts of the current meat production and consumption sort of processes. Um, and so at their, their job is not to sort of say, hey, everybody go buy a Tesla or something. Uh, but it is to sort of lay out there, here's what net zero would mean, and here are some ways that states could sort of uh, uh, reach that levels and, and, and get to that point. Um, the big question about that is, is how much are um, some of these other concepts like, like historical justice and um, um, distribution of costs really going to fit into the analysis? And so... Um, 
how, how much are they actually going to say, okay, we're going to have to uh, maintain economies of oil producing dependent states. We're going to actually prop up Qatar um, and, and, and some of these other countries in order to not disrupt their, their livelihoods. And that's going to be a necessary component of it. Uh, how much of it is going to be uh, historical justice? So actually taking accounts of future generations and, and young people uh, in terms of our sort of impacts of it. Um, some of that will get into the reports, how much of it exactly and how it will be framed is, is sort of yet to be determined. And so how much do you think policymakers are going to pay attention to this? We have this, we have the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, every nation is supposed to be uh, meeting goals for reducing uh, global warming. Uh, does, does a report like this have an, an impact on, say, American policymakers or European policymakers or people in the third world? But Yeah, uh, I, I, I mean, I think the skeptical argument it has has some real validity in this point that, you know, it's, it's going to be another tool in the toolbox of people that already were going to work on this. And so the, the senators that already care about climate change are now going to talk about the IPCC report, but but they were going to talk about something else anyway, like they, they were already on that sort of focus. Uh, and those that were going to deny it are still going to deny it. So they're not going to be convinced and, and, and uh, they're not going to they're not going to move over. Um, I think if you're expecting this to be a, 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 a big conversion point, uh, that's probably the wrong bar to hold it on to. This, this report is not going to, to con convince people that haven't been convinced at this point to suddenly understand climate change and sort of uh, rally around it. Um, but there's a lot of things in the report, both this report and, and the next two reports, uh, that I think are going to change the, the, the content of the policy debates. Um, it's really good that the IPCC, IPCC has really identified the differences between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. That's going to be a significant pressure on, on policymakers to take significant action rather than gradual action on that particular process. Um, other issues are going to come out in the reports that are going to, to change the sort of uh, discussion. The, the main impact of this set of reports, this whole sixth assessment, the three parts of it, everything, is it's going to establish that we're in the decade of heroes. This is going to be the decade where the decisions are going to be made of, of what world we're going to live in for the rest of the century and, and, and the next one. Um, and, and the report's going to give that sort of generation, the people that are going to get politically active this decade, uh, the tools to do so in the most effective manner possible. Um, and I think that's a, a, a pretty good tool. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's not going to, it's not going to convince people that haven't been convinced by the fifth report, um, which was essentially the same in terms of the physical science basis. Um, but I do think it's going to give a lot of activists a lot of tools um, that's going to uh, hopefully open up some political space. So Casey, I'm going to ask you a pedagogical question. So uh, you teach uh, this stuff to your students. Uh, how do you bring a report like this uh, into the classroom? Uh, what are the ways that you've been thinking about maybe cluing your students into to what the IPCC is saying? Well, there, there, there's a lot of different ways to think about it with, with political science, I think. Um, uh, uh, one, the thing that I always find the most interesting is the, the, the high confidence, medium confidence, low confidence, and all these sort of aspects. I think that's really a nice transparency. And so uh, what we could do is we could put that next to uh, uh, alternative things, which don't say how confident they are in their claims. They just make their claims and stuff like that. And we could actually talk about what's the different presentation, what's the different uh, uh, sort of impacts that these are likely to have on, on the political world, uh, particularly related to your last question on policymakers. There's, there's some activists who want the IPCC to be a, a bludgeon. They want them to come out and say, uh, this is this is happening. It's happening right now, everywhere we know it, and we have to take action tomorrow. Um, and the IPCC consistently has said they're not going to do that. They're not going to engage in um, um, that type of uh, polemicism. Uh, I, I I would definitely uh, sort of teach about the different ways in which these these uh, act, different actors uh, can use their. Uh, um, 
their authority in, in, in a variety of different ways uh, to influence policymakers. And there's some uh, groups on, on all sides that don't really care about scientific authority. They just care about uh, getting things their way. Um, and then there's the IPCC, which really does care about scientific authority and in some ways hamstrings their, their impact as a result of that. But I think in the long-term health of uh, their reports, um, it, it happens effectively. Um, if they would have if they would have gone more political in the fifth or fourth assessment report, uh, we might not get such a impactful sixth assessment report uh, in the the decade that we really needed uh, to inspire action. So while I have you on the podcast, Casey, I want to comment a little bit on the Biden administration and its climate plans. Uh, maybe connected to this report? Uh, I mean, how will the report maybe uh, impact what the administration is going to call for? Uh, what, do you, what do you see happening there? Yeah, so I, I mean, uh, I, I don't follow the, the domestic uh, sort of politics uh, very significantly. So I'm gonna paint in, in some broad uh, brushstrokes. Um, the Biden took a lot of efforts on Inauguration Day in that first week on climate change. And climate change was one of the first weeks that he signaled a lot of uh, changes from the Trump administration on. The United States rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, um, which uh, now, now we have to uh, agree on how we're going to uh, reach net zero at uh, uh, some uh, uh, point in the future. Uh, he, he re-empowered the EPA to, to uh, 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 take on climate change and a whole host of other executive orders. Um, some of those are, are going quite effectively. Some of them have actually been hamstrung. And there was just a report in the New York Times uh, uh, last week or two weeks ago um, about how a lot of the climate ambition has actually been sapped because so many people left the EPA and the Department of Interior under, under Trump that were top of flight climate experts that now they don't have the, the expertise needed to do a lot of these uh, sort of efforts that they're trying to do. Um, and so they're, they're rebuilding that back, but it's going to take a, a little bit of time to really reach that, that level that they had um, going on. Um, the second big thing is, of course, the infrastructure uh, uh, bill that's being pushed uh, through the Senate uh, ever so slowly um, right now. Uh, it is a large push, and the version passed by the House had a lot of things that would uh, reduce the, the, the U.S. climate, uh, uh, the U.S. carbon uh, sort of uh, impact. Um, the Senate version had a lot less of that. Um, it, it, it didn't provide as much money. And so right now they're in reconciliation where they're going to try to work out the differences. Um, if it takes a strong uh, a tilt toward the climate change closer to the House version, uh, I think that uh, uh, Biden administration is going to look like a, a, a very active uh, part on climate change. Uh, if it looks more like the Senate uh, uh, action, then he's going to have a couple years where he's really going to have to focus on climate change in order to get us to the point uh, that we're going to need to be. Um, and you still have the, the proponents of the Green New Deal pushing on the Biden administration for um, a, a much more significant economic transformation that actually takes uh, climate impacts seriously. Um, so far, they're, they're uh, having some success, particularly at uh, uh, elected individuals, um, but they could become a real uh, large movement if uh, uh, Biden's early efforts sort of seem too weak for them. Uh, that, could, that could further embolden in a lot of ways. Um, the biggest sort of thing to, to look for is both the reconciliation on the, the infrastructure agreement, how that comes out, uh, but also then the California recall election where um, uh, because of the, the, the really odd way they have that set up, uh, uh, Newsom could be recalled and then uh, any number of candidates with very low percentages could become the new governor of the state. Um, and a number of them that are, are high up in the polls have expressed uh, downright climate denialism, um, if, not, if not climate hostility. Um, and, and uh, uh, the California effect is something that people study in environmental politics, where California can really uh, uh, lead the rest of the nation because of their, their large economy. Uh, slowing the California sort of efforts on climate change down uh, could do a significant harm to the ability of the United States to, to meet any uh, Paris uh, 
efforts we sort of make uh, and could also just slow down um, uh, Biden's efforts on the tech as well. Yeah, California has a huge impact on the automobile industry, right? Their emission requirements. And if California would say, we're going to require electric cars in all of California, that could, that in fact might become almost a national policy, particularly if, if other states would would uh, join that. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, in terms of like on the ground policy, it, it's California and New England, uh, the, the, the whole Pacific coast of New England that really lead the United States on it. Um, and the rest of the country has done very little. Um, Biden could accomplish a lot with the infrastructure agreement, particularly in, in, in some of these areas that have lagged. Uh, but yeah, the, the California effect is really big and uh, the recall effort uh, could be very destructive to uh, simply maintaining that uh, for, for larger efforts on the Players Climate Accord. It could roll back them for, for, for a long time. Um, this, is, this is different than the, the last recall effort where, where uh, Schwarzenegger actually was a, a climate activist. So he actually took uh, climate change very seriously and it was a key part of his, uh, his brand when he was running for governor. Yeah, well, we'll see. Uh, my California relatives tell me they think uh, Newsom's, Gavin Newsom's pretty safe. All right. <laughs> but, but my relatives may be biased. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you should have them on the podcast to discuss the recall. <laughs> okay. That'd be a, a good addition. <laughs> All right. Well, Casey, this has been very enlightening. Uh, I think I really understand better uh, what the IPCC is up to. Uh, and we'll look uh, forward to their Next reports, have you back uh, by February, if not before, uh, to talk about the second part of the report and, and, uh, and, and other, other matters. So Professor Casey Stevens, uh, really appreciate uh, your contributions today. Thanks so much, I'm very glad to have you. Thank you again for having me, it was fantastic. And thanks again to uh, Chris Judge of the Providence College Office of Marketing and Communications, who provides production assistance. And thanks to all of our listeners. Please tell four friends about Beyond Your Newsfeed.